Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Our guest today is Bishop John Rushihana, uh, one of the great Christian leaders of our time. Uh, bishop Rushihana is the bishop of the Shira Diocese of the Anglican Church of Rwanda, his his home country. Uh, he's become known not only in Africa but around the world as one of the great prophetic voices against the horrible genocide that took place in his country in the 1990s, and particularly in the work toward Christian reconciliation that he has spearheaded in his wonderful ministry there. Uh, Bishop John, we're delighted to have you here at Beeson Divinity School today. Thank you very much. It's a joy to be with you. I wonder if you would begin just by telling us a little bit about your own background and how you uh, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. I came to faith by grace in 1966 uh, when I was uh, in a refugee camp in Uganda. But I was, uh, I was born in Rwanda and raised in Rwanda and uh, educated in Rwanda in my elementary and part of my high school education. In 1959, in the insurgency and troubles of our nation, we escaped into our neighboring countries and became refugees. And uh, it's in a refugee camp that uh, Christ met me and redeemed me. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, there were more than a million people who were massacred as a result of this horrible genocide in Rwanda. Uh, what led up to that? What is the historical background that could lead to such a, a devastating result in a country like that? Well, the, what led to the genocide, basically, it began by manipulation, control, extraction of uh, wealth, and uh, putting literally the African society to work by using some of the Africans against other Africans as a, a system for colonial to divide and rule. And eventually it came to be established by, from experience, it developed into uh, ethnic differences because uh, the Belgians favored the Tutsis against uh, to be their taskmasters for some time. And that created a resentment to the, to the rest of the poor Tutsis and to the Hutus who were in a, in a country. And by the time the, uh, in, the, in the 50s, when the, Rwandan, the king of Rwanda requested for independence, the Belgian, who were then the colonial masters, turned their favor from the Tutsis to Hutus and uh, created a revolution against the Tutsis, who were the taskmasters. And instead of having a revolution against the Belgians, they had the revolution against the Tutsis, who were actually the tools of the, of the colonial masters. So it became a chaos. And eventually, after the independence, which they eventually got in 1962, instead of building political parties on ideologies and programs and strategic development for the independent Rwanda, they developed political parties against uh, based on ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So that became the, the, the crippling said state, and that created more and more of the enmity between the ethnic ethnic groups and eventually led to the genocide of 94. In the West, it was often portrayed as a civil war 
uh, between the Tutsi and the Hutu. You, you make a strong point that this was not really a civil war, but in some ways it was the result of the colonial experience itself, going back to Belgium's control of your country starting uh, after World War I. Exactly. It, was, uh, it wasn't a civil war at all, because uh, if it had been a civil war, this country became independent in 1962 from the Belgians. Instead of correcting the mistake of the colonial manipulative tendencies of divide and rule, they establish political parties on ethnicity, which actually gives responsibility of the genocide in, in, a, in a bigger part to the Rwandan themselves who didn't seek to correct and to reestablish the development of the nation, but continued the misuse of their ethnicities to the extent of the genocide. At the same time, we, 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 when you make a proper analysis, the, the Hutus who took over the independence and the rule of the country persecuted the Tutsis for over 35 years. And uh, they demonized them like any other genocidal symptoms. They deprived them of education. They, they, they couldn't allow them in the army. They couldn't give them jobs. They couldn't get businesses on many streets of the country. They, they were basically rendered and made second-class citizens. And when they had the genocide, suddenly they killed them. There was no war. It's just a matter of picking them and killing them. Mm. And, and they had established the identity cards separating the Hutus from Tutsis, so it was easy to pick them because they are identical cards, driving permits, certificates, would allocate who they are and where they are, so it was easy to pick them and kill them. You mentioned the role of the country France also. It was very prominent in the way the genocide was supported uh, from those outside the country. What's yes, the background yeah. of that? Well, uh, the background of that, uh, in 1972, the military of Rwanda staged a coup d'etat and removed the what they called the elected government. And the, the military, the head of the military took over the government and therefore fell off the favor of the Belgians. And then the, he rather had partnership with the France. So basically France took over from Belgium and France started sponsoring, giving grants to the Rwandan government, supporting the military, supporting them into their programs. Then in 1990, when the exiles came to seek to be part of the country and engaged a military war against Rwanda, France brought in their army to support the government of Rwanda against the rebels. So they got involved, so involved that they were even on the roadblocks separating the Hutus from Tutsis, and they knew deliberately, they knew they did it deliberately that the Tutsis were going to be massacred. And they were supervising roadblocks, and they were fighting alongside the, the, the Rwandan government against the rebels. So they were practically involved. Yeah. Now, I want to talk in a little bit about your involvement in Rwanda as a Minister of Reconciliation. But before we get there, say a little bit about what, what was happening in your life when you were in exile in Uganda. Well, I, I think uh, God got involved transformationally in my life to prepare me for the horrors of my people. Uh, I became a teacher 
in schools and I became a headmaster of the school after I accepted, I accepted the, the, the surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, uh, got involved into lay evangelism and uh, got involved into the community development services, uh, got involved basically into the transformation of our people in Africa. And it was at that time in obedience to the Holy Spirit, trying to help those God wanted to help have a better life and surrender to Jesus and be transformed as Jesus transformed me. So by so doing, and, and after I became actually minister, continued to have the work of evangelism, which I think God was developing in me and preparing me for the horrors of Rwanda. Mm -hmm. So I had a flourishing ministry in Uganda as a priest and as an evangelist. Uh, in my effort in, in schools, in my effort to to serve the community. Then from there, God called me after the genocide to go in Rwanda and do similar work, only that for Rwanda, it was really a broken nation. And uh, we had to reconcile the people of Rwanda and challenge them to get down and pick pieces and recreate this nation again on the Christian principles and within the love of God. Because both the Hutus and the remaining Tutsis were both broken. The, the Tutsis were in pain, terrible pain, because of the, of the loss of their beloved ones in the genocide. And the Hutus were also being choked by the guilt of what they have done and some of the associated guilt because their brothers and sisters had killed people in their presence. So it was a mess, and somebody had to get involved. But humanly, without Jesus, without God, without the Holy Spirit, you won't make it. There is no other way to start other than starting from God. Here at Beeson, one of the people we honor is Archbishop Yonani Luam of Uganda, who was uh, murdered by uh, the dictator Idi Amin. You knew Archbishop Luam, didn't you? Talk a little bit about your relationship to him and that period in Uganda under Idi Amin. Well, I, I knew Janana Luam personally as the head of our church, the Anglican Church in, in Uganda, and uh, also a dear brother I related to personally in evangelism. Janana uh, Luam was murdered two weeks after we had a convention, a preaching crusade together in my cathedral in Hoima, uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in Hoima, where I was the, the, the senior pastor. And uh, I organized that mission. We had, it was led by evangelists from Tanzania, Uganda, and he was one of the key speakers in that crusade. And a week later, they arrested him, and uh, he was murdered. So I knew him personally, and he was killed because of his honest and truthfulness and the challenge to Idi Amin as a archbishop. He faced him and challenged him. So Idi Amin reacted by killing him. You know, we have a statue of Archbishop Luam here in our chapel at Beeson, and several years ago we had a special service remembering his life and his martyrdom. Many people, of course, at the time said that he wasn't really murdered and there was this running over by the car, but uh, you have a different understanding of what actually happened, don't you? Yes, I, we, yes, we do. He was actually not only run over by a car, but he, his corpse was... Uh, after Idi Amin shot him in the mouth, 
because he was talking to him. Then uh, they took his his dead body and they ran a car over it mm -hmm. uh, to show the public that he was killed, trying to struggle to over overthrow or to overtake or to to really manhandle the driver, then he died in an accident. But the truth is that he was killed by Idi Amin. So, in fact, here you are in Uganda. You've lived through this horrible experience under Idi Amin. You are yourself a, a, a leader in the church, an evangelist, a, a pastor, a priest. Uh, and yet, at the time when the genocide takes place in your home country of Rwanda, you feel God's calling you to leave the comfort of the situation you were then enjoying and return to your own people. Talk about how that happened. Well, I think that is a, a choice and a conviction of a deeper calling into my life. Um, it's true that uh, God has a sense of humor. Uh, I think God didn't let me remain a refugee and come back home into disparity. God introduced me to the freedom of, as an evangelist, as a Christian, as a, a son of God. Uh, God led me to that acceptability in Uganda. I was given citizenship in Uganda, accepted by the Ugandan nation. I was uh, flourishing in my ministry in evangelism. I had acquired property, had a home. My children were in good schools. Um, life was beginning to test a life. But God gave me a sense that he redeemed me for a purpose. And after the crash of my nation, God wanted me to represent him. And I knew the picture of redemption as a refugee that God wanted to redeem those like unto me in a broken situation. So I, I felt God was calling me to witness, to be, to, to be a living witness into the brokenness of my people. Mm -hmm. And I had to surrender immediately, got, got a suitcase and got into my car and drove home. You talk about renting a minivan with 11 other pastors and going from Uganda back to Rwanda. Uh, in the, the very brunt of this horrible massacre that had taken place, 1,117,000 people slaughtered in this uh, terrible genocide. What was it like in a hundred days? What was it like uh, when you saw that, when you drove along those roads and encountered that uh, spectacle? Well, uh, the, the truth of, of our experience into that horrible site was that uh, actually was caused by a yet another, another pricking calling. I felt a very strong urge and a voice, a disturbing voice, which couldn't let me free to get some people to go and see it by ourselves. We did, I felt a voice calling me that to go and take some people to witness it because it, we needed to see it for ourselves. We didn't want anybody to tell us what it is like, what it looked like, what it is, the, the gravity of it. I, I, I felt compelled to be part of it. And I took 10 pastors, hired a van, and went to, 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 Rwanda, to Rwanda. We had actually to wait a day to get permission to go there at the border where the rebels had occupied. We had to get the, the, administra the administration and their leaders to allow us to go. Then we went 
into Rwanda penetrated into the eastern, northern, northeastern part of the country, drove down to Gahini, which was a center, down to Nyamata. But everybody, everywhere we, left, we went, everybody we met was broken. Whomever we met was broken. Whatever, wherever we went, there were people, dead bodies all over. And in homes, broken homes, abandoned homes, partly dismantled homes were dead bodies. In one home, we found 26 dead bodies with the dead body of a dog and a cat. And our guide broke down and four of the pastors out of 10 had a traumatic experience and broken down. So uh, after our visit, we had to drive them back in Uganda and took them to hospitals because it was too much to, to, to behold. It was too much to see and, and, and absorb. So some of, some of us got broken down and we had to, to take them to the hospitals. Actually, one of them now diseased. I had to stay with him until he properly recovered mm. because his wife was almost getting broken as well. So I had to stay with them until about a week until he recovered and then was able to go to my home. One of the things that you say in your book is that God works in the midst of brokenness and woundedness, that that is where healing and reconciliation happens. And until we can acknowledge the brokenness, uh, there's little hope of redemption and reconciliation. Uh, you move back into Rwanda and began this ministry that was focused upon reconciliation through Jesus Christ, who had transformed your life. And what were the steps that you took as a minister now returning to your home country in the midst of one of the most horrible genocides in human history? Well, I, I think uh, the, the only grace that the Lord bestowed upon us and me to start was ready to start from Jesus himself. There, there is no other basis of starting reconciliation in my country among my people other than starting from the cross of Jesus Christ, from the abandonment, the unfairness, unjustifiable infliction of pain upon Jesus. And yet, when he was still hanging on that tree, stripped naked, abandoned, rejected, beaten, pierced, bleeding, hanging on the, tr on the tree, hearing, still hearing the voices of of. Of the, of the Pharisees and the priests mocking him underneath the cross. In the middle of that, in the climax of that pain, he cried out to the Father to forgive the perpetrators and said, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And it's by grace that I conceived that grace from the pain. And, and the I realized that we, we cannot wait until the loss of a million people, over a million people. I cannot, we cannot wait until the pain of the widows and the pain of the orphans is over. If we are to forgive each other, if we are to engage reconciliation, it is then then, immediately after the genocide, that we had to do it, because even Jesus did not wait until he resurrected to forgive. And we have to run from Jesus. And by the way, we have a nation to build. And, and, and uh, 
I think Jesus was right to impart that on me and on others, on the, on the national leaders, our government leaders, and others to start reconciliation. And then, because even to this day, last October, we discovered yet another pit in the country with the 200 dead bodies, and uh, people were, were buried naked, and they, they were all beheaded. They were buried without heads on them. And, and still pain continues to come. It, we still discover the dead bodies, the pits where they threw the people. Pain becomes fresh. Tears flow again. So we can't wait until the pain is over. It's then, in the pain, that Jesus forgave. It's now that we need to forgive. Yeah, the urgency of reconciliation. The urgency of reconciliation is real and now. We have no luxury of time. These bodies that are being discovered, even now, continuing, uh, you have a ministry to go and to give them a proper Christian burial, don't you? Yes, we do. We, we do have Christian burial. We do have national decent burials organized by the survivors of the genocide and organized by the government, organized by the society at all levels. Wherever these are discovered, religious leaders... Uh, in the connection to the to the area and uh, and the government leaders and the community leaders are all cooperating to give these dead bodies decent barriers, and we continue to comfort the society. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 actually a shame that uh, in the reconciliation itself, even those of us who are religious leaders are finding it necessary for us to reconcile ourselves to each other too, because during the genocide. We lost our prophetic voice. We weren't there for the people. We are suffering the guilt of a contradiction. Jesus said, I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Did we have life, the abundance of life then? If we were, how come that a country which is 85% Christian could ever have a genocide? One of the things that uh, astonished me in reading the story of, of your involvement in Rwanda is the fact that so many Christian clergy, ministers, pastors, priests, were themselves guilty of genocide, involved in manipulating the death of their own people in their own churches. Uh, that's just an astounding fact, isn't it? How that evil and the demonic can enter into the sanctuary of God unless we're very careful all of us are vulnerable to that. Yes, we are, Dr. George. Uh, if you make a, a proper analysis of uh, what we call Christian, and by the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, we shall be known by our fruit, the, the danger of the church then and today is that we had people into the institution we had them into churches, become members of, ch of, of churches, but don't become members of the kingdom. They don't become the sons and daughters of God. And they don't get their hearts, their internal entities, their inner beings converted and in obedience to the Holy Spirit and to God as their creator and to Jesus as their savior. Not until we get the depth of Christianity, we shall continue to have shallow Christianity and we shall never bear fruit. That's the problem we had with our churches, and that's why I, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion and I propagate 
that we have a transformational evangelism that get people into the depth of the knowledge of God and be obedient to the requirements in their lives. Let's talk about some of the ministries that uh, God has led you to uh, encourage your people in this direction. Uh, you have a, a wonderful ministry of a tree project drawing from a part of Rwandan culture, but transformed in the light of Jesus. Talk a little bit about that and also the schools that you and your wife Harriet have been instrumental in bringing in about. Well, uh, the Omovumu tree project uh, is uh, one of the ministries and uh, curriculum we have put in place to evangelize in the prisons and the communities uh, where people who got involved into the genocide need to be cared for. First, we, we, we translated that from a sycamore tree program or teaching, which is used into prisons to, to criminals in, in jails, but we wanted to make that contextually fitting in our situation whereby we had to minister to the prisoners and uh, to bring them to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, encourage them to take responsibility for their actions, surrender to, to God and, uh, and admit their the doing, but also help them to seek forgiveness, not only from God, but also from the, 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 the survivors of the genocide. And that builds up again to the, to the, to the, to the reconciliation and the building up of society. And this has been a tremendous success that the thousands of prisoners who have come to, to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior truthfully exposed their actions in the genocide, spoke about what they have done, their victims, how they killed them, and that helped establishing the justice into our community courts. And the people who are at large in the communities who are not in jail, who wanted to cover up those realities, could not do it again because the prisoners who, accept, who accepted salvation are speaking the truth from jails and the people in the community cannot hide it no more. What about the schools? Uh, Sunrise School is also another element, another school we were prompted by the Lord to put up as a demonstration of reconciliation because we have brought in the kids whose parents were massacred in the genocide. Orphans. The orphans. And we also brought in the orphans of the people who perished when they were actually killing in a confrontation with the army, killing people. Those orphans are also in the school. And we brought in a few from parents in order to reduce the stigmatization of the, of the orphans. Then we are now, we have grown a school uh, we started with the elementary one to four. Now we have uh, elementary six, and we have high school from high school one to twelfth grade. And uh, our the first graduates of the school will be this year, and we have a total of one thousand students, both in elementary and high school. Yeah, and uh, it's become a wonderful demonstration on reconciliation where we have the Hutus and Twas and Tutsis together loving each other as a family and looking forward to challenged to make a new nation and we are raising leaders of the nation. And because of your work in Rwanda, 
with prisoners, with orphans, with those who have been victims and victimizers of uh, the genocide. Uh, you were given the William Wilberforce International Prison Fellowship Award, uh, which is recognizes in this ministry your own involvement. And we congratulate you for that because God is using you in a wonderful way. I wonder, uh, as we bring our conversation to a close, uh, you, you not only have spent a great deal of time in Rwanda, but you also know the American church. You actually were a theological student here. Uh, what would you say to us, uh, we who are in the American church today, as we think about the world, we think about the situation even in Darfur, where genocide continues to be a pressing need uh, of humanity? What would you say to us as American Christians when we think about the world and our responsibility in it? Well, uh, thank you, Dr. George. I think uh, what I can say really to the American church, um, uh, I don't claim to be a, a prophet, but uh, uh, I'm not an either the son of a prophet, but um, as a Christian, really interpreting circumstances of the Christian church in, in the world today, uh, the church in America needs to be a little deeper and a little more prophetic and fruit-bearing than Possibly it is today, and many other churches are today. On the work of reconciliation, the American church has a challenge to bring the American society to more of a deeper transformational level than it is today. At the same time, I possibly want to challenge the American church within its ability and uh, within its ability resources within uh, the within its knowledge in education and the theological training and abilities to be able to engage a transform a, a, a ministry of transformation not only in america but in the world uh, the church in rwanda and the people in rwanda were abandoned during the time of the genocide um, I think we have a notion of what Jesus felt when he was abandoned by his disciples and the people and, and left alone into the loneliness of death. Rwanda felt something about that. But it's not only the UN which abandoned the, the world. It's, the, it's even the churches in, in, uh, all over the world didn't come. At least didn't, didn't, we didn't hear any voice from any church anywhere, saying, hey, what's happening in Rwanda is wrong. Stop it. Telling the UN to, 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 to stop it. Telling their governments to stop it. To, not, not really to call it names. How, you know, they spent a lot, millions of money debating in New York, in the UN, what they call the genocide of Rwanda. What do we call it? If we allow it a genocide, we have responsibility. Let's call it another name. And they spent a lot of money discussing that, and they failed the genocide became the genocide. Darfur is suffering. Many churches need to speak out. It's a genocide. People are being murdered because they are dark, they, they are different from the Arabs, and they are, they are, they are settling on wells of oil. They want to be killed so that oil can be inherited by other people. The southern Sudan has been killed for over 20 years, dismantled, because nobody's talking about it. So injustice has to stop. But if Christians do not bring about the redemption in the world, 
Who else will bring it? Something must be done, not only by the church in America, but by the Christian church everywhere. We, we belong together, and we belong to the same Lord. And, and what Jesus said that he came that we have life and have it abundantly is not happening because the church is not interpreting Jesus properly. Mm-hmm. Bishop John, thank you for your own prophetic witness and for your faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thank you for sharing this conversation with us today. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and support. Beeson Divinity School is an evangelical, interdenominational divinity school training men and women for service in the Church of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.